Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Lovett's wow. drinking Starbucks and talking shit about Howard Schultz. He's a complicated person. He's a complicated His guy. His face is a map of the world. <laughs> what are we talking about, John? I don't know. We were playing that song earlier. Lovett was. Later in the pod, Lovett talks to the Washington Post, Dave Weigel, about Bernie Sanders in 2020. We're also going to talk about the latest efforts to stop Trump's national emergency declaration. Former Deputy <laughs> FBI Director Andrew McCabe's press tour. And the announcement that Bernie Sanders is joining the oh. ever-growing field of candidates vying for the Democratic nomination. Woof. Love it. How was the show on Thursday? I hear there was a, love there was a proposal. It. We had an awesome love it or leave it with Megan Gailey, Travell Anderson, Michaela Watkins. We also had a proposal at love it or leave it. You should check it out. It was very moving. It, mel- it melted our cold hearts. I'm glad you're two for two on the proposals. I like. Hopefully one of them doesn't go badly someday. Well, you know, Elisa, whenever somebody... We've now had two proposals at Love It or Leave It, and whenever Elisa gets wind of one, she calls the person who's going to do the proposing and grills them, like puts them through a full psychological workup. She's like, marriage is a social construct. You don't need to do it. (laughs) So the person proposing has to ask permission of their partner's parents and Elisa's. Yes. That's awesome. And Elisa just like, are you... Is this real? Or is this one of the situations where you're proposing to a stranger at a football game? You know? Yeah. Cool. Well, everyone uh, everyone, that. check it out. Um, all right, let's get to the news. Sure. Shall we? Uh, on Friday, Donald Trump declared that there's a national emergency on the southern border in an effort to bypass Congress and get the money for his wall. The White House says they'll be taking the money from military construction like housing and hospitals, from efforts to stop drug trafficking, from all kinds of projects that the president is simply not usually authorized to take taxpayer money from. And what I gathered from Twitter was a, a real sharp press conference. <laughs> it, was. it was on the plane, so I missed it. You guys have to fill me in. Uh, the president acknowledged that he was likely to be sued over the decision and then bolstered the legal argument of the people suing him by saying, quote, I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. Um, did I miss anything else? Before we get into it, did I miss anything else from the press conference? You should just note that he did sing it like yeah. Dame Edna, so that was oh, yeah. weird. I knew that because then I, I, sued, I saw we'll Alec Baldwin do it. So then I was like, what is Alec Baldwin doing? I had to go back to the original impression. <laughs> I see. I see. You're like, memento. Was, You're like memento for that. I'm just, uh, I was just a you know, low-information voter this week. The original was uh, <laughs> very weird in the uh, moment. All right. So a few questions to kick us off here. Where does the power to declare a national emergency come from? How unusual is it for a president to declare one? And what are the potential consequences of Trump doing this? The power comes from Congress. In 1976, they passed the National Emergencies Act, I believe is mm-hmm. what it's called, uh, which allows presidents to declare national emergencies to do certain things. Uh, it's happened a lot of 
times. Uh, Bill Clinton did it 17 times. Bush did it 12. Obama did it 13. If you look back at the Obama declarations, most of them are like sanctions because of political unrest in Burundi. That's right. one literal example. Uh, this one is very unusual because it's actually taking money uh, and using it to build things. That And it was not... Um, appropriated by Congress. In fact, Congress specifically said we will not appropriate funds for these means. So this is very And that unusual. part is unprecedented. Yes. It's, well, it's not unprecedented. It's happened twice. Uh, Bush used a uh, national emergency declaration after 9-11 for military construction, and then it happened one other time previously. I can't remember what Gulf it was. War. It was the Gulf War. But yeah, there's so, no, but so there's what's no un- specific... Sorry, you do it. Yeah, I was going to say, but what's unprecedented is not the, the... So there's two times the construction projects have happened with the money. What's unprecedented is a president has never declared a national emergency to spend money that Congress specifically rejected. Yes, absolutely. So that's, that's, the, so that's the new territory. And it's, a very, and it's a very big deal. It is a very big deal, and it shouldn't be sort of... I think it doesn't deserve to be put into the category of, oh, presidents have been expanding authority for a very long time, which is certainly true. This is a new level because Congress being in charge of the money, Congress being in charge of the purse strings, as people in D.C. would say. Power of the purse. It is fundamental. Yeah. Basic. It's basically why we have a Congress. It is the it is the organizing principle of our government that the president is powerful, but he, he can only spend money. He can only use money that Congress has given him permission to use. He's not in charge of the bank. Like that is a very important distinction yeah, I mean, that we are gliding over. It's in the constitution that, you know, the president's job is to faithfully execute the laws, not to make the laws. That's what Congress does. <laughs> Congress appropriates the money. They that make the thing, laws. The constitution. That, that old thing. So now the, the legal, ch- I mean, the, we'll talk about the legal challenge later, but I guess what's messy here is the fact that this national emergencies act existed in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Which basically Congress says, it, and it's very vague. It doesn't. Vague. It doesn't define exactly what an emergency yeah. is. So there's not criteria to, to define uh, in the law passed by Congress what a national emergency is. Uh, in in general, the courts have been pretty deferential to presidents uh, about what they're declaring a national emergency on. Like they're not. The courts aren't uh, usually calling balls and strikes and saying, you know what, that's not really an emergency. Therefore, you're uh, you can't do that. You're, you don't have authority here. So. But I mean, just real quick before we move on, uh, like there, so 3.6 billion comes from military construction. Mm. I just want to point out that the DOD budget is big and bloated, but military housing is really bad yeah. in a lot of instances. There was a poll of military families living in base housing, and it found that more than half of respondents said they had a negative experience living in these privately managed housing. Um, some reported living in dangerous conditions that included mold, lead paint, faulty wiring, poor water quality, uh, mice, squirrels, like lead poisoning. Jesus. Uh, is permanent. That permanently damages your child's brain if they get lead poisoning. So, like, you know, this is not a small thing. And, you know, over the weekend, Lindsey Graham was asked about uh, a bunch oh, of money that I- was going to construct a school. And, and Graham's gross response was, well, those kids, they don't need a new school. First, they need a, a safe border. You know, like, the, the, the rationales are crazy. I was going to bring that up. I would say it's better for the middle school kids in Kentucky to have a secure border than a school. Yeah. In okay, Kentucky. Buddy. Yeah. In Kentucky. <laughs> The border down by Mexico is what he's talking about. If a Democrat said that, the IRA, like yes. that would be the quote that Republicans would paint the entire Democratic Party with for an entire campaign. Mm-hmm. And and we should like that is the 
dumbest, and, and it's hard to well, dumb Trump's quotes. Well, all the dumbest people are coming out with their dumbest stuff. It, it is like open mic night for morons. So Matt Geitz <laughs> oh, yeah, knew, said, Republican gonna... of Florida, human frat paddle, gigantic dickhead. Uh, he said, I don't want the next national emergency to be that some Democrat president since we have to build transgender bathrooms in every elementary school in America. So that was him actually opposing the national emergency. Which is, that was his hey, 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 buddy. Stop helping. This is a guy who tried to throw out the father of a student who was shot in Parkland from a hearing. That's how bad a human he is. Matt, Matt Gates is very, very bad. Um, so if, you know, if the courts say this is okay, I mean, the potential consequences long term for this are incredible, right? <laughs> in a very bad way, right? Like that means that a basically future presidents can declare that something, some threat is a national emergency and then therefore spend money that Congress has told them not to spend. Right. And, you know, people are saying some of these Republicans who have opposed it are giving that as a reason for saying, like, you know, as Matt Gates did, which is a, a ridiculous one. But there's a more serious one, which is, you know, climate change, which is a national emergency and a, it's a global emergency. An actual one. Yeah. Gun, national gun, emergency. gun violence in the United States. Gun violence in the United States, right. These are, these are real emergencies. The water you, crisis in Flint. You can come up you with can a imagine, thousand of them. And it's, and look. Legitimate. <laughs> Like, we've said this and we've been tweeting this like, oh, great, next president can, uh, next Democratic president can do a Green New Deal by executive authority. And we're sort of joking because I don't, I don't think it's a good idea for any president to be able to spend money that Congress told them not to spend. That is a fucking autocracy. That is not, that is not a representative democracy with checks and balances. No, it it's very dangerous. And <clears throat> the only reason we are not current, like, I think that there has been two kinds of reactions. One is this. Is this actually, is this fascism or is this fascism for the TV cameras? And of course, with Trump, it's always both. And I think we're all relying on the fact that, oh, he's doing it to save face. Oh, he's doing it because it's going to be tied up in the courts. And all of that is true. But the next Republican will be better at this. Yeah. And uh, everything that's happening now, you know, we've talked about this from the beginning. Like, what are the, what are the, you know, what are the rules he's bending that will bend back? And what are the rules that he's bending to the point where when you try to get him to f be shaped like a hanger again, you can't hang a coat on it, you know? The other thing it's worth mentioning is no one, no one believes, not Donald Trump, not the White House, not the Republicans, not anyone else, that there is a national emergency at the southern border. No, it is this thing that we're all talking about, but like no one who's mentioning it believes it. Attempted crossings are at their lowest level in nearly four decades. Most drugs are intercepted at the ports of entry. There is no invasion. There is no, like, everyone knows this. And you saw Chris Wallace uh, of Fox News trying to confront Stephen Miller with these facts on Sunday, and Stephen Miller just did his thing where he just like yells and gets yeah, angry. His tone and just goes I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did. Like, Congress can take up a resolution to block this national emergency declaration, and mm -hmm. what I think Democrats should do is say, Republicans, this is your chance. You believe in the Constitution. You believe in your authority to do what you were elected to do. Let's block this. Otherwise, this is now precedent, and we will be doing it when a Democrat is yeah. president of the United States, period. That is the reality of living, because we cannot play by two different sets of rules. Can't happen anymore. And that just reminded me, um, uh, you know, in terms of what the courts will do, originally the National Emergencies Act just allowed for a congressional uh, vote of disapproval, and then it would stop the national emergency. And then in 1983, the Supreme Court gave presidents the power to veto the congressional resolution right. of disapproval. So that's not a great sign for what the courts are going to do, at least the Supreme Court in 1983. Um, but, um, but that's there too. So let, let's, I want to talk about the reaction from, we started talking about this a little bit, but the reaction from the party that spent 
eight years calling Barack Obama a lawless socialist tyrant who abused his power. Mm-hmm. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who spent the last few weeks advising Trump against declaring an emergency, immediately announced on Friday that he's now for it. So far, according to a count by 538, there are 19 Republican senators who are supporting Trump on this. Um, there are a couple others who um, haven't decided yet. Why do you think McConnell and a bunch of these senators are backing Trump on this? And would you say this is the most hypocritical thing Republicans have done in the Trump era, or mm. where does it rank? It's up there. I mean, what they're trying to do, you know, one of the arguments you see is, you know, it's just such a shame, right? They're, they're, they're not coming out against it. They're not specifically saying they like the national emergency, but what they're trying to do is claim because of democratic intransigence, you have forced Donald Trump to do this, right? That you're putting Donald Trump in the position of having to declare this national emergency. And then on the other hand, you see a bunch of kind of soft, very lukewarm statements of, you know, I'm concerned, opp- I'm concerned, yeah. we, sh- we ought, this ought to give us pause. Marco Rubio said something similar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the story of the last three and a half years, just total capitulation. Totally. Yeah, I, th- I think that they know that their base wants the wall because their base wants everything Trump wants. And so they're scared to oppose him. Uh, I think that they don't want him to shut down the government again. And they think that he's unhinged and he's partially unhinged because people like Lindsey Graham are making the even crazier suggestion that he tie uh, funding for the wall to the debt ceiling, I don't even... which could explode the global economy. So this is the path of least resistance. This is the way out of this mess that Ann Coulter's mean tweets have led Trump to bring us into. Uh, everyone should read Adam Jenelson's op-ed in the New York Times about Mitch McConnell, which I think is fantastic, and I'm sure Jenelson has been writing most of his life. He was uh, yeah. former chief of staff to Harry Reid, so he knows McConnell quite well. And he sort of pushed back on this notion that McConnell is some sort of institutionalist, right, who jealously guards the Senate power and the well, Senate's power. It's like this latest move by McConnell follows holding the seat open for Garland, getting rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court. He's you know, he challenged campaign finance laws, uh, wanted to make Barack Obama one-term president, proud obstructionist, wouldn't sign off on the Russian interference. Like Mitch McConnell has basically will be known for handing the Republican Party over to Donald Trump mm-hmm. in order in order to let Donald Trump do its bidding. There like is, that, that is what he there is one and, there he is gets, a and he got a bunch of judges through. That's a, there is one counterexample to that, which is that Mitch McConnell has not removed the legislative filibuster. I'm so fat. I would love uh, people who know this. Who, who know these things to to tell me why Mitch McConnell's not done that? It's it's a fascinating thing because it, it really does run 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 counter to that argument. There is whatever whatever he's actually done. There is some interior logic for him to talk to himself about himself. Yeah, and and I guess uh, the the most charitable interpretation of why McConnell decided to back Trump on this is. He just wanted to avoid another government shutdown because he knows it's politically unpopular. And he thought, all right, Trump's either going to shut the government down or I back him on the national emergency, and that's it. And so I might as well do this. He wants power. He wants to be in charge. I mean, the New York Times profile of him was like just 10,000 words of celebrating cynicism from from, from the Garland uh, Supreme Court seat to today. I mean, that's what he, he wants to be in charge, and he will do literally anything. And you mentioned uh, blocking campaign finance reform. He didn't really care about campaign finance reform. He no. thought maybe it was a maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, but he knew that if he threw himself in front of that train, it would pay him huge political dividends down the road, and he could take a bullet for members who didn't want to fight or be perceived as fighting hard against it. So, like, he's a cynical Washington fixture. Yeah. I also do think there is there is 
they're not acting upon it because I think they're craven. But there is a, I think there is a bipartisan consensus behind closed doors that the that the national emergency powers are being abused by this president. That it's wrong. That it's dangerous. They are worried about Democrats invoking in the future. That is all real. Which is why I think even though the president does have the ability to veto this, I guess uh, uh, Democrats in the House should uh, uh, force the Senate to vote to uphold yes. or not uphold the national emergency. Yeah. It needs to go I want to them the Senate. on the record. That was going to be my next question. I mean, so there's eight Senate Republicans who are publicly opposed to the declaration and about 15 more who are in the, I, no. have, I have concerns. Mm. Yeah. But, but eight opposed is quite a bit. Yeah. And that would be enough with the Democrats to have the resolution pass. And then, I mean, Trump's first ever veto as president would have to be vetoing a bipartisan resolution of disapproval on him declaring a national emergency to spend money that Congress already told him he can't spend. So even if it doesn't work because they don't have the two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate mm-hmm. to then override Trump's veto, you got to think it's worth doing. Yeah. And it's worth noting, too, that this is something where Mitch McConnell doesn't have the ability to stop a vote, Yeah, which yeah. is fascinating. Within 18 so, days, he has to so vote. It can, it's a, it's a, it's a, the, the national emergency's powers are really interesting. So the House can decide, the House can, for, if the House passes uh, um, a rejection of the national emergency, the Senate has to take it up. There's no, there's no way for McConnell to get out of it. So his members will have to be on the record. And there is, I do not understand any argument against making that vote happen. That vote has to happen. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, like, bigger picture, Trump is giving Congress the finger every single day. Under the Magnitsky sanctions, he was supposed to submit a report to Congress, I believe last week, uh, that that indicated whether he'd put sanctions on the Saudis as a result of Khashoggi murder and why. He just blew it off. He just gave them all the finger. And all the the sad sack Marco Rubio tweets and protestations did nothing. So yes, put them all on the record. If these eight guy, if these eight senators vote uh, with the Democrats on the national emergency, that creates a political political problem for them with the MAGA base in their reelections. It's good for us. Period. Yeah, I'm interested to see what all the Republicans who are vulnerable in 2020, how they vote on this. The jo- Joni Ernst and uh, Tom Tillis and, and that crowd. Um, if the legislative strategy fails, uh, there's also a legal strategy. On Monday, a group of 16 states filed a lawsuit in a California federal court arguing that Trump's move is unconstitutional. According to the suit, contrary to the will of Congress, the president has used the pretext of a manufactured crisis of unlawful immigration to declare a national emergency. Um what are the legal experts saying about the chance these lawsuits will succeed? And what are they hoping for, at least in the short term? I think it's complicated. I mean, Trump's little sing-songy uh, assessment of what would happen was pretty good. spot on, right? <laughs> I mean, it'll go to the Ninth Circuit first, and it'll probably side against him, and then it could go up to the Supreme Court eventually, and they're likely to go with him. I mean, there's a near-term challenge, which is getting standing to hear the case, because it's not clear whether any of the fencing would be built in California or New Mexico, two of the states in the lawsuit, that would have to show that they are being harmed by this decision to yeah. therefore get a hearing. It's obviously, there's not uh, going to be harm in New Jersey or New York, which are other states in the litigation. So there's a bunch of near-term steps, but I don't know. I didn't go to law school. You took the outside. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one, the, the, the thing a that's... question on the LSAT? The thing that's frightening about this is ultimately, you know, Judges are very reluctant to step in and adjudicate the facts of whether something right. is an emergency. It's a, it feels very much like a political question and a question that they will defer uh, to the president on. And so I think 
you know, it's all just we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to see what Congress does. We'll have to see what happens with these cases. I don't think anybody knows. Yeah, I think, you know, Vox talked to like 11 legal scholars who all seemed mostly doubtful, though some said, you know, they the, the judges will either decide Congress did approve this by passing the National Emergencies Act in the first place. They'll mm-hmm. either say that and say, you're right, we can't define what it is. Or they'll say, they'll just look at the precedent and be like, we cannot have a situation where Congress, which controls the purse, says we will not fund something. And then the president says, I will fund it anyway by declaring something a national emergency when... And by the way, when you declare something a national emergency, what you're saying is, you know, I want construction funding for to help the military with something. Well... The military is not. The military would be used to help build the wall. The military mm-hmm. is, doesn't need help right, right now. Well, you, you saw Stephen Miller's little shitty tr- attempt to get around this by saying, "Well, now we have troops on the border, so they need to be protected with the wall, which is why we're stealing money for their kids' schools right. to build a stupid wall at the border where we're forcing them to go." And again, I would not underestimate. I mean, we all joke about this because he just. Trump says crazy things, but saying I didn't need to do this, but I wanted to do it faster Amazing. really does undercut the argument in court. Look, I, you know, the facts are the facts, right? He, he had control over both houses of Congress for two years, didn't pass this. He shut down the government to try to pass this. He couldn't pass it. He tried to pass it again, couldn't pass it. And that's when the emergency begins, yeah. right? The, that, <laughs> Political that, emergency. There's no way to look at the facts and not come to the conclusion that this is a fake emergency. The question is whether or not judges would be willing to do that. And to your point, John, whether they'd be willing to go so far as to say, I'm going to step back from this specific example and look at what we're saying here, which is that the president can just spend money any way that he wants, no matter what Congress says, which is incredibly dangerous. But again, like as has been the case from day one, we are we are in a position where we are waiting for Republicans in Congress or judges with lifetime appointments, many of whom are Republicans on their way up uh, to the Supreme Court, which is controlled by Republicans uh, to be courageous uh, and to show great moral character, fortitude and love for the country. Good luck, everyone. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about the politics of all this. Uh, was this Trump's smartest political move ahead of his reelection? His advisors are saying that the new slogan is finish the wall, which they said really means finish what we started and it's is about so the entire Trump presidency. It's a whole, it's a whole you got to get the whole picture. You know? don't, don't switch horses mid-wall. They also, uh, <laughs> they also say that he'll use this issue to run against the establishment in D.C., I don't, I mean... He, he has a base-only strategy, and so yeah. everything he does is designed to make his hardcore base happy. Fox News had a poll that has 50%, 56% of the country opposing the National Emergency Declaration, 38% approving it of it. So that would track pretty well with an all-base strategy. I think this silly dance of can keep building the wall when they haven't built a single square inch of a wall is laughable on its face, but so is the idea that Mexico is going to pay for it. So I'm sure it'll work with the same people. I mean, the question I have is whether the Ann Coulters of the world teeing off on him, calling this a lie, saying the national emergency is actually the fact that he's an idiot, correct, uh, will, will... you know, cut off little bits of that base that he needs to actually win in some of these So that, that was my question is I, I wondered if, but if he hadn't declared the national emergency, then he runs by saying, you need to send me back to Washington and send a bunch more Republicans with me right. so that we can build this wall. He does the national emergency. If it's held up in courts, so he doesn't get it done. Now it looks like he's just feckless in a whole bunch of ways. <laughs> he couldn't get it done to Congress. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? But the, the one thing we do know is 
he did try this political strategy before about the wall, and he did it in 2018. Again, we we always forget that last month of the 2018 election was all wall, all invasion, all caravan, caravan, all caravan, caravan. He had the whole conservative propaganda machine with him. He had ads that the Republicans are running in every single state, every single race, and. It didn't work. It certainly worked with his base, but the base was not enough in 2018. We want a Senate seat in Arizona, right? where, where there's going to be another race. We almost picked up a seat in Texas. If We almost won in Georgia, where the only reason Stacey Abrams isn't the governor right now is because of shenanigans. Will Hurd probably only won that seat on the border in Texas because he was against the wall. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was a massive landslide. So, you know... I don't know how, you know, what, uh, trying to attribute too much thinking into their strategy. Donald Trump likes talking about the wall. He likes it. He doesn't totally understand why. He thinks it helps him with his base. He prefers talking about that than the investigations into him, the stall domestic agenda, uh, the actual doing of the job of president, which he has no interest in. So, uh, you know, yeah, who knows? His staff constructs uh, a strategy around his actions ex post facto. Yeah. That's how this always <laughs> He's goes. Like, it's like, um, it's a bit like basically Donald Trump broke into, he, Donald Trump, uh, it's as if Donald Trump is a baby and he found a paintbrush and a bucket of paint and he's been running around an empty warehouse throwing paint against the walls and Kellyanne Conway and that guy Brad Parscale and all of his fucking advisors are following behind like naming each section of the wall being like him this Jackson is called President. right this is called uh this is uh the the delightfulness of being alive this one's a darker <laughs> piece this one's a story about <laughs> loss like he's just walk they're walking around as he's spa- you know I think that's not unlike how things go at like Christie's and some of the fine art and warehouses but I look it is annoying when you see these tracking polls when you see his approval tick back up to sort of where mm-hmm. it always has been post shutdown but it, it it's a reminder that it's incumbent upon us as democrats to use the shutdown and all the crazy stuff he does as a proof point in a broader case about trump being temperamentally unfit for the job or corrupt or whatever it has to be like we have to make an argument yeah well on that note too how should democrats talk about the wall and border security in 2020 this week republicans have been happily pushing around beto o'rourke's answer to a question about whether he'd take down the existing wall in el paso to which he said yes the wall hasn't made them any safer and in fact it's made it more dangerous for people who want to legally petition for asylum I, I don't know. I mean, I think what Beto's referring to is the fact that back in the day before the wall, uh, workers would come up from Mexico to the United States to do jobs that no Americans wanted to do. And they'd work for uh, six months during you know, some sort of agricultural season and they'd return home to their yeah. families. And then we built the wall and we made it so hard to get back and forth that people just started staying and in, 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 uh, remaining in the United States undocumented. So there is this like original sin of our immigration policy of these uh, draconian steps we took that made things worse, not better. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's probably the best argument is some kind of, you know, that we need, you know, walls and fencing in some places and technology and, and border patrol. And in the middle of the desert, we obviously don't need a wall. And that's yeah, that, always been our point. I think that's the interesting thing, right? It's like there's it's a 2,000 mile border and people like Beto people who live on the border represent the border. And this is true of some Republicans like Will Hurd as well. Know that this is a comp like real security and a real solid immigration system along the border is a combination of some fencing, some security, some human resources, some like letting people come live and work and then go back to Mexico. Like it's so much more complex. And the question is, can Democrats talk about this in the nuanced complex way um, in an election where, you know, Donald Trump's going to say you either have the wall and everyone's safe or you tear down the wall and, and uh, they're all coming in and they're going to kill everyone. And abolish ice. <clears throat> He'll say abolish ice. The, uh, you know, I, 
I think part of this is about finding a way to talk about the border and talking about the wall, but also making sure that you're never just talking <clears throat> about that. You know, we do have a broken immigration system. Yeah. You know, we it's like it's like we keep <laughs> we spent 30 years, you know, making coming to the United States illegally more and more attractive while trying to make it harder and harder to get in. We built this crazy system. Um, we don't punish the people who are responsible. We only punish uh, the poorest and and uh, uh, least able. Uh, you know, we only pu- we only punish. Um, the the poorest people, the people working the hardest, the people who bear the brunt of the pain of the immigration system, who are just doing it to try to get a job. So I think as long as people are talking in a broader way about their vision for an immigration system in which uh, all the pain isn't visited on undocumented people just trying to build a better life, but actually you crack down on companies abusing immigrants, you crack down on the system uh, that pits American workers against undocumented workers. If you make it about uh, trying to have a sane, rational system that doesn't uh, that doesn't lead to uh, a massive buildup of security along the border while millions and millions of people have to live in the United States on the shadows. If you're talking about it in that way, I think we're winning. I think whenever we're spending all of our time talking about a wall, even if our argument is better than his on the wall, even on the issue itself, we do better than Donald Trump when you ask people about it. It means we're not talking about anything else. Yeah, bigger than the wall, bigger than ice. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Donald Trump spent his President's Day accusing his own Justice Department of treason in an attempted coup against him. <laughs> That's very, so... very cool, very normal President's That's Day really stuff. Funny, <laughs> dude, get a sale on a couch. <laughs> <laughs> what set him off was a 60 Minutes interview with former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who's out with a new book. Like everyone else, McCabe confirmed a New York <laughs> Times report that immediately after James Comey was fired, the FBI launched a criminal investigation into whether the president obstructed justice and a counterintelligence investigation to determine whether the president did so because he was compromised by the Russian government. I mean, <laughs> McCabe also told 60 Minutes that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who's now reported to leave his job in mid-March, once discussed the possibility of wearing a wire to record the president as well as invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. A spokesperson for Rosenstein said that McCabe's account is, quote, inaccurate and factually incorrect. Tommy, what is Andrew McCabe up to here? 
How credible are his claims about Rosenstein, and why do you think he's making them now? I mean, it would be great if one of these brave uh, former Trump official truth tellers did so when they weren't hawking a book. So let's just be real honest that he's, hawk, he's out there hawking a book. I, have, I don't know Andy McCabe. I have nothing, no reason to like or dislike him. But I don't. you are not some hero, pal. You are making money off this. The most troubling anecdote in that interview to me was McCabe saying Trump wouldn't believe his intelligence team when they said North Korea had missiles that could hit the United States because Putin told him, that was factually inaccurate. The quote was, I don't care. I believe Putin. That is nuts. That is like not, that is very knowable intelligence, whether or not those, uh, not, the North Korean missiles to, can hit the US. Talking about ads, this podcast, our Lindsey Graham ad. This is my second, this is my new ad. Just an ad that just has Donald Trump saying, I don't care. I believe Putin. Yeah. That's, that, that's the Trump slogan for 2020. <laughs> I don't care. I believe Putin. It's also clear like McCabe hates Rod Rosenstein. And maybe he has reason to. Rosenstein has clearly been lying to us for months and months and months about this anecdote where he said he would wear a wire to the White House or try to invoke the 25th Amendment. And you know what? Trump has every right to be pissed off if his deputy attorney general was trying to invoke the 25th Amendment against him. Also, how fucking stupid are these JV sub-cabinet official idiots colluding in their little DOJ meeting about wearing a wire on the president of the United States and... and Invoking the 25th Amendment? Here, here's what really annoyed me Know about your that. role, buddy. Rod Rosenstein didn't even bother fucking Googling what happens when you try to invoke the 25th Amendment. He's counting up cabinet officials. <laughs> Look, this, is, this has been a thing, and, and, and people on Twitter do this too. This is our resistance folks do this on Twitter. Guys, here's the deal with the 25th Amendment. Yes, it's counting up the cabinet members, right? And if a majority of the cabinet and the vice president vote to remove the president from office, they can do that. Well, then the next thing that can happen is the president can send a letter to Congress saying, no, I am fit for office. And then do you know what happens? It goes to Congress to vote. And you need two-thirds of a majority in both houses to keep him out of office, just like you do with impeachment. So stop talking about the fucking 25th Amendment. It's the dumbest fucking thing. No one's ever going to do it. It's for a president who's incapacitated and can't send that letter back to Congress. Um, counterpoint. <laughs> uh, I respect their moxie. I respect uh, a couple of guys in the in the DOG, one of whom, Rod Rosenstein, is who helped Trump come up with the insane rationale to fire Comey, which is another weird part of the Rod Rosenstein uh, Wikipedia entry that yeah. nobody can really make sense yeah, of. Yeah, my, my, my question was going to be Rod <laughs> Rosenstein, hero, villain, or neither of the I, Trump era. The answer is, of course, neither. Yeah, and, and to Tommy's point, you know, what's really unclear, what's been really unclear about this story about the 25th Amendment, about wearing the wire from the beginning is... Uh, there was one allegation that I was actually just joking around. It's never been totally clear how serious it is. It still isn't clear how serious mm -hmm. it is. I, I, I don't feel as though what we're hearing is the truth. Like, I, I think that there are versions of the truth. I, I think agree. it's parts of the truth. But the story doesn't make sense. The way they were talking about it doesn't make sense. I can't tell what was just an offhand comment versus, versus a serious conversation. What is clear and what has been true about McCabe for a very long time is, and this is, I think, the most important thing, which is a bit lost when it's part of this fucking book tour, is early in the Trump administration, there was a moment of genuine panic that this could be the worst possible version. Yeah. That what we could be seeing mm. is the worst possible version of an election compromised by a foreign uh, government and that the president himself was compromised, legally compromised by a foreign leader for some personal reason or some secret, and that there was a legitimate concern amongst career officials who were seeing something they never saw before. And I think what's pretty clear now is they didn't handle it well. Well, yeah, thought experiment for you guys. Imagine if 
instead of going to a conference room with Rod and McCabe and, and you know, kicking around ideas, doing a college bull session about the 25th Amendment, they'd walked out of the building, called a press conference, and publicly aired these feelings and concerns then. I think it could have been actually pretty impactful in that period of time. So here's, here's what I've been thinking about. Um, it, like, McCabe seemed very alarmed. Obviously, Rosenstein was very alarmed. They seemed alarmed because they're like, well, what if he fired Comey because he's compromised by the Russians, right? That's just a kind of a, a crazy thing to just throw out there unless there is underlying evidence and, and things that they know that we still don't know. And to me, I wonder if this goes back to just how bad Mike Flynn was, mm-hmm. right? Because remember, this all started with Trump told Comey, please let him go. And then when he didn't let him go, he fired Comey. And so whatever Mike Flynn was involved in, and we know now, you know, Marcy Wheeler was reminding us of this the other day, that a judge was so alarmed by Flynn's misdeeds, and the judge is the first one outside the, um, Judge Emmett Sullivan is the first one outside of Mueller's investigation to really see exactly what was going on with Flynn, that he said, you've basically sold out your country, you betrayed your country. Yeah, that was intense. So Flynn clearly did something so bad that for Trump to then try to um, tell Comey to let him go and then to fire Comey, something that they know that we don't yet, I hope, because otherwise it's just, you know, random alarmism, but like made then, you know, Comey and then Rosenstein and then McCabe very, very fearful of exactly what you were just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one little thing. So McCabe ultimately got forced out of the FBI because the inspector general did an investigation about his contacts with the media, and it was determined that he had been untruthful about those contacts with the media. So like two quick things on that. One, Trump basically sought retribution and had him fired the day before his pension kicked in. That alone is a big scandal, I think. You you shouldn't be able to... Uh, personally destroy someone's life and financial future like that. It's fucked up. But two, so McCabe got in trouble for leaking to the press that he was trying to push forward on the Clinton Foundation investigation over the objections of Obama's DOJ. So again, the leak made McCabe look good. Hillary and Obama look bad. It was a pro-Trump leak. That is always lost in this. I well, know. that was also part of the insane rationale. Remember, when, that was one of- firing the, Comey. Right, and, that, 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 and that, that's why Kushner thought Democrats would be cool with it, because yes. he was firing Comey for being too hard on Hillary Clinton. Again, none of which has <laughs> ever made sense. Jared is so stupid. Every, yeah, everyone was fired for being too, too hard on, on uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah. And they were, it's all, it, but, it, but yet it's a conspiracy and a coup to overthrow Trump. No, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, Got it. So also, breaking this morning in the New York Times uh, is a story that Trump told Matthew Whitaker, uh, the uh, former acting attorney general, to put Trump ally Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. attorney for SDNY, Southern District of New York, in charge of the Cohen case, even though Berman had recused himself, the hush money payments case. Whitaker refused, which uh, good for Matthew Whitaker, I guess, though he testified before Congress that the White House never asked for promises or commitments concerning the special counsel's investigation or any other investigation. So here we have another Uh example of, remember, the Michael Cohen crime, Michael, Michael Cohen and federal prosecutors, not just Cohen's word, federal prosecutors have implicated Donald Trump in a campaign felony. And in that investigation, Trump wanted his ally to then take it over. I mean, we have a whole nother obstruction case here. <laughs> Man, a thousand obstruction cases bloom. You know, it, it, uh, remi- uh, There's Trump, our title. Trump, <laughs> Trump, <laughs> nice. Trump 
Trump in this case reminds me like he's just there's this there's an episode of The Sopranos where uh, where Tony is going to buy weed killer and he goes up to the guy at the counter and he's like I need some weed killer and he's like oh we have this kind he's like no no I want the hard stuff give me the DDT give me some of that illegal shit and I feel like Trump just walks around to people in his orbit just like hey will cry for me yeah. <laughs> give me some help me out no okay oh, oh, just kidding it's funny kidding. you it's funny you say it that way because. There's some parsing on the denial from Whitaker, right? Which is never ask for promises or commitments yep, concerning yep, the investigation. Yep. So it happens. So it is, uh, it is like Trump being like, what do you think? Do you think, you think, you think you can do that? I, what do you think of this idea? I got a crazy idea. What if we obstruct justice in New York too? Yeah. Thoughts? Uh, comments? I think we often talk on the show about how Trump's tweets, if they were emails or calls, they would be more scandalous than they yeah. are tweeted. We finally found out what the emails and the calls say. Right, in this long, very long New York Times story that kind of weaves together a whole two years of attempted cover-up and, co- and obstruction efforts into one beautiful little narrative. And again, lives. and this it's instance of obstruction is even worse, at least what we publicly know, than the Russia investigation so far, because he obstructed a case in which he is being implicated in a crime. <laughs> so it wasn't like the, the explanation that maybe Trump's just doing this because there's political reasons and he doesn't like the Russian investigation because it makes his politics bad. No, no, no. This time he wanted to obstruct because he committed a crime. Right. Like there's, this is, <laughs> doesn't get more <laughs> clear cut than that. Can you help me? I may be in trouble with the law. I would like to obstruct it from taking I would place. like to use my power to make sure that this investigation into my crimes doesn't happen. In a way, like I'd like to build like a, I don't know, some sort of a wall or obstacle for the prosecutor, <laughs> some kind of an a bollard. An obstacle that justice can't overcome. A jersey barrier, perhaps. <laughs> some kind of an obstructing... A, jer- uh, inst- a jersey barrier. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this is bad. One, one last point at all. Oh, sorry. No, no. One last point, just I think that there's something that ties all these stories together, which is crimes after Trump is gone sooner rather than later. We are going to have to figure out how to safeguard our government from a president who feels no shame and no scruples and no respect for precedent, because that is true of what's been happening with the national emergency. That's been true of what's been happening with the Justice Department. So we're going to have to find a way. Fewer norms, more laws. Fewer norms, more laws. (laughs) That's the the lesson of the Trump administration. And it's going to take a lot, and it's going to require laws that stand up to a Supreme Court, which is why we got to figure out that whole Supreme Court thing, too. (laughs) People don't know what norms are anyway. Get rid of them. Make them laws. Yes. Laws. (laughs) Um, Laws. Laws. All right. Uh, we have a new candidate running for president. Who is it? Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders announced he's joining the field this morning with a video and a longer interview with CBS's John Dickerson. The 77-year-old socialist runner-up for the Democratic nomination in 2016 begins 2020 as one of the frontrunners, as polls consistently show that he's in one of the top few spots. In his video this morning, he promised, quote, build an unprecedented and historic grassroots campaign that will begin with at least one million people from across the country. Uh, I know we're going to have a more in-depth conversation about Bernie between Lovett and Dave Weigel, but what are your first impressions of Bernie's rollout, his strengths, his challenges? Who wants to let go? me Let me start by just saying, and I think it's important, uh, I am for every candidate for about two to three hours after I've watched their announcement video. The sucker for an announcement video. I love video. an announcement video. <laughs> Bernie's announcement video was fantastic. I thought he did a great job arguing for the rationale of his candidacy. I think he thought he did a great job also making clear. I think one question I had, that's something I talked to, to Waggle about as well, is, you know, I think in 2016 he vacillated between somebody who wanted to be president and believed he could genuinely win this thing and somebody who was in it for morally totally valuable reasons of like, I want to get in here and I want to move this party. I want to make a, I want to stake a claim for a different kind of politics and I want to push this party to the left, which he achieved 
uh, and deserves a lot of credit for. But what I took away from this video is that this is somebody that is in the race because he wants to win the race. Yeah, I did too. I mean, uh, there was a lot of Bernie content out this morning to the point where I, I kind of had a hard time sorting it out. The short version of the video, which is currently pinned to his Twitter feed, is really good and makes a compelling case for all the ways he has moved the party to the left on issues like Medicare for all. I think that is not only smart to point out because uh, it speaks to the power of his candidacy last time, but also the feasibility of his ideas and the candidacy itself, right? Because yeah. people like us said there's no way he could be elected. You know, free college is crazy and, you know, you can't pay for it, whatever. All the things that people said in, in 2016. Um, the Dickerson interview reminds you how uh, the CBS John Dickerson interview reminds you how consistent Bernie has been and how funny he can be in a moment. I'm going to play just by teeing up my laptop his response to a question about Howard Schultz that had me laughing my butt off. Howard Schultz has now said he would not run as an independent if the Democrats moderate uh, nominate oh, a moderate. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> that is the is perfect response to funny. Howard Schultz. That is just the right amount of dismissive about this putz who is trying to, you know, hold the Democratic Party hostage by saying, nominate a moderate or I'm going to ruin it for everybody. Yeah. I mean, look, in all these announcement videos uh, or announcements in general, I'm always looking for, you know, this is an incredibly crowded field. Why are you, why you, why are you standing out at this moment? And Bernie answered that question in the video yeah. in a smart way by saying like, all these things that all these Democrats are proposing now. This was this was me. But then he mixes it with another message was I've been waiting for some Democratic candidate to use. Elizabeth Warren has done it a little bit. Um, and you see potential candidates doing it like Beto did this in the Senate race. You see possibly Kamala and Cory Booker doing this, too. But it is this is about a movement. Right. Yeah. And Bernie oh, said absolutely. this to Dickerson, too. He said, whether it's me, whether it's any of the other candidates, none of these people, none of us are going to be able to get all these big policies passed just by electing us. It's going to require a movement of Americans pushing over and over and over again. And he's emphasizing the movement. And that, I, you know, I think eventually the question, because we talk about how hard you're going to fight about things, right? Like, are you going to remove the filibuster? Or are you going to be the type of person who says you're going to work with Republicans, right? But ultimately, we know that all of these policies that we're talking about, none of them are getting passed without mass mobilization of people that continues long after the presidential race is over. And I think Bernie at least recognized that in that interview. Mm -hmm. um, challenges for Bernie Sanders. He's a front runner. Seriously. Yeah. Bernie's a front runner. I mean, it's always hard to be the front runner this early. Uh, a lot of people have glommed onto his major policy positions or, you know, or let's say it nicely, sincerely have believed these policy positions for a long time and have gotten into the race. People like Elizabeth Warren. Well, that's and I think that makes him also a victim of his own success, right? Yeah, I think I think there's two. I think that there are two big challenges coming for Bernie at once, and they have to do with the difference between 2016 and 2020. In 2016, basically, he said his rationale is you want an alternative to Hillary, and you want someone that advocates for a uh, more left wing vision for the country. And in that context, he's somebody who was getting between 40 and 60 percent of the vote in these races, right? He was a very popular candidate. He ends up with 45 percent uh, at the end of the primary, starting from starting at the beginning of that race down by 50, right? I think one of his challenges is he is one of the front runners now. He's in, in these polls. You see basically Biden and Bernie and, and Kamala sort of in the top three spots. Yeah, I would say he's a front runner unless Biden jumps in. And I think right. that changes things. But that's right. For someone who only, in a recent poll, I think, 
16% of people had never heard of. I mean, this is, a, this is an issue with Biden, too. Both of them, both Bernie and Biden, have incredibly high name recognition. And yet, their numbers in these polls are at the top of the field, but not great. 26%, 25%, something like that. Which means that there's a, there's a whole bunch of people, Democratic voters, who know exactly who Bernie Sanders is and what he stands for, who knows who Joe Biden is mm-hmm. and what he stands for, and yet are still either thinking, I'm not ready to be with them now, um, and I'm also looking at other candidates. Yeah. And I think what Bernie has to figure out is he built this coalition in 2016, and that coalition, there's some composition in that coalition. Some of those people are diehard Bernie fans, and they are going to be with him right now. They are part of this movement, and they're going to be with him in 2020. And then there were a group of people who voted for Bernie because they did not like Hillary Clinton for whatever reason. And the question is, that group of voters that was with Bernie in 2016, will they be with him again in 2020? Or are they looking around at Kamala Harris, at Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. at Joe Biden, at any number, uh, any other number of candidates who may not have had the baggage that Hillary had for some reasons that are not her fault at all, but some reason, you know, so. That so are, yeah, and, 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 but also on top of that, and does that matter in a race where there's going to be 12, 15, yes. who knows how many Democrats, what is it going to take to win? You know, it, I think it's, it's starting to hit me more and more just how, uh, how hard it will be to understand, let alone predict the dynamics of what's playing out in each of these votes. It is, uh, it is going to be a chaotic process. And we don't know sitting here right now if is, is the winner of the Democratic primary going to be someone who's winning early states with 20 percent? Right. 25 percent, 30 percent, 18 percent. We don't you, know. And that's a definitely. and those differences really, really matter. And thinking about and it was the first time I really thought about that hard this morning when I was watching Bernie, because I was like this. It is totally unpredictable what might happen, because we have this is maybe the first time we've had a field this large with so many really, really strong contenders, not just, you know, people here. And 2008 there. was pretty strong. 2008 was pretty strong. But even that boiled down to. Edwards, Hillary, and Obama. Why not Dodd? Right, why not Dodd? As the three really strong contenders in 2008. And I think in this field, you could have maybe five or six in the top tier. I agree. And those people and all all of those candidates are building up a real fan base. Bernie has a fan base. You, you can see Kamala developing a fan base now in some of her crowds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and uh, you know, there's other Warren. candidates like that as well. Warren as well. Um, and so how that plays out over the primaries with these votes and, and who wins, is it's... It also means relatively small percentages of voters in a given state could have a huge impact. And so I think there's going to be a real challenge for Bernie uh, in that a lot of hardcore Hillary supporters yes. in 2016 still blame him I was for say. their loss and, it, and, and or maybe less for their loss but they they are very angry at him for what they feel was um, a refusal to stop say abuse from his supporters online look I, I'm not refereeing this and saying it did or didn't happen I'm just telling you that that there's a very strong undercurrent of former Hillary people that still uh, have deep-seated hard feelings and he's going to have to heal that wound because that could be a huge chunk of people in a primary and I will say and it's tough to figure out you know how much of this is the conversation online and on Twitter and how much of it is real life. In real life, when people poll the field, um, we have a field of Democrats that are well-liked by most Democratic voters. Uh, Very few of these people have very high unfavorable ratings. And that's true of Bernie Sanders. That's true of just about everyone else. So it seems like everyone is well-liked by most people. But you you can talk to a lot of Hillary supporters, and, and we've seen it too, 
Bernie Sanders supporters on. Now, I've met many Bernie Sanders supporters and campaign staffers in real life. Wonderful people. Like Faz Shakir, who just got named the campaign manager, who's a brilliant, great guy. Brilliant. Um, and, you know, when you want, a lot of these people are just great people when you meet them. Online, Bernie support Bernie supporters, and I know some some people are just bots, right? But like some of them are real supporters, can be quite difficult to say the least, and that is the charitable interpretation of it. And you know, I saw some you know w- w- women tweeting this morning. Hillary supporters like I didn't even want to say anything about Bernie because I knew my mentions were just going to get just attacked by people all day long. And it is look if you are, and I would say this to to Bernie supporters and all and every candidate supporters, if you are looking to build a movement, if you are looking to bring more people in, you need to persuade people. <laughs> and to persuade people, you need to uh, be somewhat respectful of them. <laughs> I, I <would laughs> Convince also... them that your argument is correct. You know, like, don't, don't call everyone maybe a neoliberal corporate shill. I, I, I just think that's a hard way to, uh, to put a coalition it's together. It's also, um, I think that there's, it's, uh, I think it's also. And Bernie doesn't do that. No, I, I also think it's a kind of failure to recognize success in that. There are kind of, I feel like there's two ways that this persuasion to pull the Democratic Party to the left have played out. One is with a positive vision, right? And one is by by kind of relentlessly criticizing democratic orthodoxy for being too centrist, for being enamored of an old-fashioned way of viewing the electorate, for failing to recognize the change in the country, failing to take economic inequality seriously enough, failing to see the trends that would lead to someone like Trump. And I think that there was a real frustration there. There's a validation there in what we've seen in the past few years. But that is one way of persuading people and it has a real it has real value but i think when it runs to its logical conclusion and you're accusing every single person who maybe even agrees with you on policy grounds but then worries that oh maybe it's not practical or maybe there is some reticence on the part of of voters or maybe that dave weigel reports that on the campaign trail he finds people less ideologically uh, uh conflicted than there are on twitter that even pointing that out having a conversation about that is somehow seen as giving in or not being progressive enough and i think it's very frustrating yes we should never make policy decisions based on, you know, what the insurance company is going to say or what Republicans are going to say. We should never be scared of corporate interests or what Republicans might say. But that doesn't mean there's not room for policy disagreements based on substance. <laughs> not everyone who disagrees with you on a policy is doing so because they are in the pocket of corporate interests <laughs> or because they are afraid of what Republicans are going to say. Sometimes Good faith people just have good faith disagreements on the best way to come up with the policy. And people who believe that their goal is to do the most good for the most people as quickly as possible come to the conclusion that, say, a public option or a Medicare buy-in for 50-plus will help more people faster than pursuing single-payer right now because they don't necessarily view it as something that's achievable. You can disagree, you can argue on the politics, but you're not going to come around and tell Sherrod Brown that he's not a progressive. Give me a fucking break. There's some value... There is some value to, I believe in single payer. I like Medicare for all. I support Medicare for all. There is also value in showing a little bit of respect for people who want to say something as simple as, I'm for it, but maybe it's harder than you think. Maybe the transition is more difficult than you're imagining because we haven't done this before. And those of us that were in the fight and saw how hard it was just to get Obamacare through and what it took to get through that and the backlash to that have some legitimate questions about the right way to pursue it and a debate about how best to manage that transition is a good one to have. I feel like you're getting something personal off your chest. Then. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know where that was coming from. 
I don't check Twitter anymore, so I don't even know what's <laughs> yeah, OBP. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, that's just just came spontaneously. <laughs> it's a, totally spontaneous. It's a big font just, for those remarks you just read. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up. I, on my, on my computer, what is that graph? On my computer already, right now. He already went through this with me, Tommy. It's, uh, before the show. So basically, it's a chaos theory diagram that shows you what happens as a system that is stable as you get further along gets more and more unstable i, I will share it on twitter but basically i think it's a metaphor for the Tommy's democratic primary so great right <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the democratic primary here's how you can predict thing when there's one candidate oh it's not so hard to predict when there are two candidates now there's four candidates oh shit nothing's clear see sick graph it was a graph that basically just says when there's a lot of candidates you don't know what's going to happen it's a metaphor Can't shut up tell the future all right when we come back we will have Lovett's conversation with the Washington Post, Dave Weigel. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Our guest today is a reporter at The Washington Post, where he also writes the trailer newsletter about campaigns and elections. If you're into prog rock, and good for you, he's also the author of The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock. Please welcome back Dave Weigel. Dave, how you doing? It's good to be here. I'm doing great. And uh, thanks for taking a, a, a moment on your vacation to do this. You're in Portugal, right? Is that public, is that I, public I knowledge? Where the, the socialists and the communist party are in power here, so it's kind of a preview of what will happen when Bernie, Bernie wins the presidency. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a great that's a great segue into uh, into the topic at hand. So uh, you've been following Bernie's decision pretty closely. What opening does he and his team see in the field that gives him the confidence that there's a path to the nomination? It's interesting because it's a combination of a narrow path in the primary and then this extraordinarily broad path in the general. So um, he's been pretty explicit, and he hates talking about process, and he hates the media asking about process. He calls it gossip, but <laughs> he's been talking about process and saying, look, he, he won, you know, 45% last time. He 
in a divided field maybe needs to win 30% to win this whole thing. And he has a devoted uh, group of supporters. He has a message that has been consistent where if you're unsatisfied with uh, uh, with him, they'll even look at you know, how Kamala Harris can't explain why she's for Medicare for all. So he thinks a combination of support will get him into the, the nomination. And then his his uh, politics are so unique that he'll be able to appeal to voters who have not voted Democratic or for anyone in years and, like, compete across non-swing states. So in 2016, it sometimes seemed as though Bernie was running to win. And then at other periods, it felt more like he was running because he wanted to push the Democratic Party on a key set of issues. So that was what ultimately was driving him, uh, you know, the the policy views that he's espoused for a very long time that have now become far more mainstream. It, it was striking in the video and message that he was delivering this weekend that that ambivalence seems to be gone. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, it, he does have this confidence that he didn't have at the start of the campaign last time. I think uh, if I can go into a tangent that's pretty relevant, uh, I think the problem is there are a lot of people who had the same mixed up logic last time and voted for Sanders who are not interested in him anymore. Uh, so his coalition in 2016 included a lot of diehards who will vote for him again and say they want to vote for him again, according to polling. Uh, and a lot of people who kind of wanted the primary to go on longer or to shape Hillary on the issues, but did not think Hillary would or should lose the nomination. And then people who just like hated Hillary and wanted to vote for the non-Hillary candidate. And you saw that in you know Kentucky and uh, West Virginia uh, uh, some states where white voters who then have not voted for any Democrat at all uh, turned out for Sanders. So uh, in his mind, because he won this big coalition before, most of that coalition must be ready to turn out again. So it's kind of academic whether he's changing the debate or not. Uh, and even when, when I, I pushed him on this, last time I talked to him was, I think, three weeks ago. Uh, and you said to him, you would be running in a race not against uh, the candidate of Clintonism and the establishment, but against several people who co-sponsored all your legislation. And the sense I got from him was that he is so much more far-reaching and consistent on left-wing ideas that he, he's in this to win, but if he's not in it, how much do people get away counterfeiting his ideas who don't plan to implement them? I think that was a real work for him, certainly for a lot of his supporters. I think that's why if you turn on Twitter, and I don't know why you would do that because it's horrible, but if you turn on Twitter, <laughs> uh, the, the most anger from Sanders voters is often directed like a Kamala Harris or a Kirsten Gillibrand or somebody they see as like a phony trying to get on his ideas. Uh, there's not a lot of, of, of faith that they would debate them honestly between themselves, I think, from the Sanders camp. So he, he definitely agrees with that. That's interesting, though, because it almost it seems as though it's like looking for the same rationale, right? That that. Okay, in 2016, there was a uh, an opening because uh, there was a hunger for uh, more left wing policies, and there was a uh, frustration with who the party was heading to nominate without much of a debate. Now you have a much yeah. bigger field, and a lot of the people in that field they're espousing Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren just put out a big proposal about childcare. Uh, the The debate has shifted in part, I think, because of uh, Elizabeth Warren, in part because of Bernie Sanders, in part because of Trump. Um, and yet it seems like when, when you say, oh, but they're not really for these policies, that you're actually going back to that rationale of he needs to be here to keep them honest. And yet, 
they mm-hmm. are, I, I don't believe those other campaigns would agree with that, right? They would say, no, we're for this. This is this is what this is where the Democratic Party now is. Like, do you see do you see a struggle for rationale in that? I don't I don't actually think it's a struggle because uh, you can honestly go back and see Bernie Sanders saying he wants a Canada style health care system as long ago as the 1980s. I mean, he probably said it even before that, but there wasn't video taking a record of his opinion. And it is true that when other Democrats describe, let's just stick to Medicare for All, when their Democrats describe Medicare for All, even if they say they're all in, even if they co-sponsor the legislation, they describe something more incremental. And as a senator, uh, Sanders has said he, he is fine with endorsing the concept and agreeing that that's where we need to end up someday. You know, if you co-sponsor my bill, you think we can't do it for 10 years, okay. If, we, if you co-sponsor my bill and agree that we should phase it in, or two or, in two or four years, uh, even better. But he looked at the field and didn't see anyone who uh, actually agreed with him 100% on the policy on the implementation. Other Democrats, I, I keep going back to Harris, not just to pump her up, just that she's the person who had the, the most recent interaction with this. You know, she, when asked what she would do with the private insurance industry, got kind of a leading question, but a fair question whether this would eliminate that industry, and she kind of sounded like she said yes, and then she walked back, whereas Sanders would give a confident answer on something like that. He really thinks the, the industry should shrink down to just little supplemental insurance policies, and there should not be Aetna and all these other big pharma companies, sorry, not just pharma, healthcare companies, uh, striding the earth and determining what you get. Uh, even Warren, who supports Medicare for All, when she when she's pushed on what she would get done, often a little incremental, and I think a lot of people who are critical of Bernie running and say, uh, even even moving to the point where everyone agrees on this concept and has different incremental ideas, why would you run again? Uh, one fear from Sanders supporters that you hear a lot is that maybe a Democrat adopts these ideas, wins, doesn't do anything, and we're even f- further back than when we started under Trump. Uh, that is something that I think Sanders worries about, certainly something his supporters worry about. So even if everyone agrees on stage, who do you trust to actually do this stuff? Because uh, I think the, the way that this is described on, online is, is socialism or barbarism. <laughs> like <laughs> These people believe if you do not go for uh, Bernie, Bernie's agenda, you will end up with right-wing nationalism. So you know, back up a couple of paces, look at people who view the stakes in that way, and of course they want Bernie to run. Of course he, he's in a good position uh, to win their votes again. So do you think that that logic applies to Elizabeth Warren as well? I mean, there was a lot of reporting before they both got in the race that maybe only one would do it, that if Elizabeth Warren got in the race, Bernie yeah. might not, in part because they are colleagues and friends, in part because they do share a lot of views. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I think the message about being there first that Bernie is putting out there fairly is one that Elizabeth Warren could argue for as well. Yeah, and I, th- I think uh, so. I, they never reached a deal. I don't know how seriously they got into it. I don't think Bernie would have run in 2016 if, if she had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this point, yeah, he sees himself in a stronger position than, than her. Uh, he certainly is, according to the early early polling. Um, although, actually, like something else. The thing is that early polling asks about Biden and Sanders, and Biden takes up this huge chunk. One is always in the lead. Two ch- takes up a huge chunk of people who might not support Sanders in the second round. Uh, but but backing up from that, he, looking at the polling, Sanders didn't see reason to back out if if the candidate he agreed with the most was not clearly winning. If he was not spoiling her chances, he is. Despite being a third party independent candidate in Vermont, he's really interested in not spoiling things for Democrats. That's one of his operating principles. 
So I, I do think they they could have reached a deal if I'm not I'm not trying to read his mind. If Bern, if if polls showed that Warren was at forty percent and clearly beating everybody else in the field, I think Bernie's thought would have had a second thought. Yeah, uh, because it's so divided with so many people, he doesn't he doesn't tr- trust quite as much. I think that created more of a of a space for him. Yeah, and in fairness to and in fairness to Bernie too, I mean, in some of the attacks he refused to make in 2016, it was always clear that even though he was running hard to push the party to the left, he had a kind of he felt a sense of moral obligation to make sure that ultimately the Democrat won. Um, so one thing you 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 recently mm-hmm. wrote this in uh, uh, that that the Demo- when you were uh, uh, I think on the trail with with uh, Senator Harris, you said the Democratic electorate showing up to meet its candidates is far less ideological and skeptical than the one that lives on social media. What did you mean by that? And do you not find Twitter to be as elucidating as as we all do? <laughs> Uh, I, I mostly am here for the memes. I like mm-hmm. to take memes that were funny three months ago on like TikTok and then take them and make them lame <laughs> because I'm a man in my 30s. Yeah, yeah, make them lame. Uh, make them lame. But yeah, the political Twitter, uh, there are people who think too much about it probably. And even in terms of, uh, of how you reach voters, Facebook is still more effective in reach, it's reaching new voters and targeting people that might not be tuned in than, than Twitter is. Twitter is this raging conversation. Uh, that I think is influential in how media coverage works, at least for now, but not really that representative of, of, of voters. And what I meant in that paragraph is I, I was about to take off for a week and was summing up what I'd seen so far this year. And after going to all these town halls, I think Gillibrand got her second Franken question today or yesterday, but I had seen one Franken question for Gillibrand. There was one, all oh, two Native American questions for Warren. I think that the Wesley said the Times has a story today about Democratic voters not wanting to talk about Warren scandals. They're not caring. Um, there was al- there were almost no questions about the things that were seen as big vulnerabilities uh, in the social media narrative. But at the same time, there were not many questions really grilling people on how whether they would implement the perfect version of Medicare for all or the Green New Deal, et cetera. Yeah, just people are. Uh, as we saw in 2018, they're not settling for like right-wing Democrats or corporate Democrats, as they were called uh, by by a lot of representatives on the left. Uh, they just it is very easy for them to be satisfied with a Democrat who can win and just stop Trump from being president. Uh, and when they're pushing on the issues, they have an eye toward that. I think a lot of Democratic voters are asking, not "Will you do everything that I, I I'm dreaming of," or, but Will you do? Will you say you'll do things in a way that you can win a majority of the country? Um, but the same, yeah. You're in Southern California. If you look at Orange County, like the voters in Orange County were not making Medicare for all a litmus test for their candidate. Um, right. The ones who did ha- say they were for Medicare for all at some point or another, that was not what they ran their campaigns on. Uh, I think it's the questions being asked of a lot of these candidates for president are are, are the kind of questions people were going to be mobilizing around if a Democrat wins in 2021. So they need to tee it up and get it into conversation right now. Uh, that's really the point of the Green New Deal, right? Like taking climate from something that is barely discussed to something that everyone has to have a plan on. Uh, but it is not really the people showing up and voting are not as concerned with that. And we have not yet seen what will happen when people debate or when people run TV ads, uh, if an idea is going to take off or not. But for the moment, it really isn't. It's not like the uh, what I saw in 2015, you know, the early stage of the Republican primary, where there were so many litmus tests on whether you fought Obama hard enough on this policy or that policy or uh, this executive order. It just, it's just like very informational kind of timeshare sales events that you see for Democrats, where people just have 
a couple of questions about how they're going to run the campaign. I mean, you often hear my, my least favorite question as a reporter to what the Quoco stuff is. How can we help you? Or yeah, what can we help you? <laughs> how can we, how, how can we get focused on uh, and not be negative against Trump? Uh, that's your, the final point to make about that is that no one is just standing up and yelling about Trump and the cans aren't really talking about him. They are kind of asking, hey, you're going to make things a little bit better? And that's not – Twitter is, hey, uh, any Democrat who does not support these 10 domestic uh, agenda items is canceled. That's not really what I see out there right now. You know, it's interesting, too, because even even pointing out that there is this difference because it's Twitter is then taken as a sign that you're choosing a side in 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 one of the great Twitter wars. Right. To even point out that maybe the electorate yeah. is less ideological is is in some sense striking a blow against the Twitter left and somehow revealing that actually you're cool with a public option instead of single pair and you're part of the problem. But there is just value. Right. You can. You can there is value in understanding better the reality on the ground. There is this problem on Twitter where where, uh, you know, on basically every issue that if the if you are sharing a set of facts that don't conform to a certain, you know, cliques views online, that somehow you're attacking them or denying the validity of their arguments. But but again, that's not how people are discussing these issues in the world. I guess. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. What you mean. I, I, that's why I kind of try to just plop the audience questions or the candid answers on the page and see what people think, because often there is a desire to make things fit a very clean storyline, uh, and it can be a storyline driven. Let's say, you know, let's look at a week ago or so when there was a fresh round of questions about Amy Klobuchar's uh, staff and how she handles hence she handles them. Mm-hmm. Not to get into everything about it, but. When that was the conversation, uh, people weren't really asking that in the crowds from all the reporting I saw. And people don't ask that much about uh, Warren and the American stuff, and they don't ask him to talk about other candidates. I mean, the one thing they'll say is, uh, "How do you differentiate yourself from differentiate yourself from the other candidates?" So, uh, but there is also all these events. You know, they're self start. They're just they're they're just they self started as Twitter, maybe more because it takes more effort to go to a campaign event than like to start an account and, and argue. Um, but there is, a, I think, a, a appeal for niceness <laughs> in public Democratic events, especially the ones in Iowa and South Carolina. And Twitter just doesn't resemble that at all. Like, no rank-and-file Democrat who's showing up to these meetings wants to hear people re- relitigate 2016 or talk about how Bernie would have won if he was a nominee. Uh, I definitely found in, over the last years in local Democratic Party groups the Bernie activists who who integrated the party did very well unless they kind of alienated everybody by talking about 2016 all the time. Like, t- Twitter is still having those arguments and still saying, look at this 30-second clip of a quote. This is a terrible answer. Uh, I, I, all these examples of Kamala Harris, I'm sorry. But, like, Kamala Harris tells her, uh, I think a Fox reporter, that she's not a Democratic Socialist and she gets, you know, 10,000 hits of a program for, for doing this and predictions of how it's going to cost their vote. And it's a risk of anybody who writes in public and takes their opinion seriously to say, that person disagrees with my policy preference. That means they lost votes. Like, it's not really clear right. when Kamala Harris introducing herself to people that that was a problem for her. Right. It's also, you know, it's so funny. It, sometimes I wonder if all of this doesn't just boil down to all the sort of the, the breakdowns of how Twitter is different. Maybe it just boils down to People are nicer in the real world, and the niceness has big implications. You know, in 
In 2016, there was this roiling argument online, and then poll after poll showed that both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders had what, like high 80s approval ratings amongst all Democrats, Bernie supporters, Hillary supporters, that the niceness of the world has genuine implications. Um, But I I want to talk about the Republicans for one second before we let you go. Is anyone other than Bill Weld going to get into the Republican primary against Donald Trump? What do you think? I think Kasich will flirt with it and decide eventually decide against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Weld has absolutely nothing to lose, uh, <laughs> and if, if, if he if he's defeated in this primary by landslide, he he still gets a lot of attention, a lot of relevance, and a lot of microphones. Uh, I I think Larry Hogan is also probably flirting with it and, and going to decide against it because every poll that's going to come out is going to show them losing by ninety points right. against this guy, and if you care about that affecting your political future, uh, you're you're not going to jump into this. I also think it's the, the White House has been focusing on a couple issues recently where Republicans are, uh, they're very unpopular positions or their positions that uh, so these, 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 you know, certainly every Democrat disagrees with, I should say, but focusing on Venezuela and abortion laws and things of that nature, just, I think Trump's given less of an opening to get in against him. Yeah. Maybe I would just find Kasich and Hogan and the other Never Trump Republicans as like if he's if he's impeached candidates. If it, if there's some if it becomes possible that he's incredibly weakened but nobody wants to challenge him, then they jump in. Uh, failing that, I don't see why they would take the risk. But it's pretty clear why Bill Weld would. Yeah, you know, look, it's Bill Weld's time. Uh, are there any? So last thing. Any candidates making interesting musical choices? You've been following a bunch of these candidates around. Elizabeth Warren is using Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. Anything that's uh, surprised you in the uh, Spotify playlist? Let's see. So Harris has probably got the best pure playlist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has like Juicy, the Notorious B.I.G. song. She has a, like, a tribe called Quest. She has just a very hit playlist. I think if you already are dis- uh, disinclined to like her, you're going to think it's Sony, but you know, around the room, people who have been waiting for a while and are tired are really excited to hear uh, Can I Kick It? Okay. Uh, check the rhyme. Uh, so she's got that. I think she has the most like uncensored F-bombs and songs on her soundtrack. That's the best one. Um, Cory Booker doesn't... No one else really has a soundtrack. I wish there were surprises, but no one else has really invested the time or has like the kind of events where you walk out and get a big... Get a big uh, you know, big big moment like a big entry music. I, once I heard Cory Booker come out to Born to Run, uh, which is a, car, a cliche and about how New Jersey's terrible. <laughs> and I, I don't know why those politicians keep using that as a theme. But like, it's time for everyone to step it up. Because Kamala Harris clearly has the the best the best playlist, like the best I've ever heard, probably. And like, come on, like no one can do fight song again. Like, they have to try harder. She's the first person who's used One Nation under a groove, the uh, the Parliament <laughs> on the song. That's just been like waiting there for a candidate to use it for decades. So it's time for other people to step up. You know, out there there is a staffer who is a second wave millennial, and if they want, they can make that playlist at their at their computer right now and really make a difference. So you know, that's your challenge to them. I think, uh, Dave Weigel, thank you so much for joining us. This is really uh, really fascinating. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for calling me. I was happy to. Now I'm going to go back to vacation. So I, I delete Twitter. Being, I'll talk to an Englisher for like a week. So delete. Good, good, good one to do that. With. Twitter from your phone. Can you take it off your phone? Can you disconnect? <laughs> I will do that. Thanks, man. 
Thanks to Dave Weigel for joining us today. And uh, we'll see you again on Thursday. Bye. Bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you need to get off your chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Uh, you know, I, I do the crossword. That helps. I'm also, I also go to therapy, you know, and I say, uh, this week, I don't want to make any progress. She's like, ugh, that's what she said last week. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com PSA.